Well, good morning to all of you and uh, Merry Christmas. We have the privilege to uh, have some family time right now. We are welcoming back one of our own from seminary. He's just here with us for a short while, but he's here just to give to us an, an account of what he's learned and what he's experienced as uh, he's been in seminary over this last year. And as someone who was sent out from, from, of, from of you uh, to go to seminary to be trained, uh, I can tell you that it's just such a privilege to come back to your home church and to be able to share with uh, your church family that loves you, that sent you out, uh, what God has been doing in your life. So um, with that, I would like to welcome our brother Chris Wong to share with us what God has been doing in his life. Uh, hello, San Francisco Bible Church. Um, I'm, hi. <laughs> Lively today. I'm thankful for the opportunity uh, to share about my, my transition uh, in, to, in seminary in Southern California. As many of you know, I left SF Bible uh, last year around August uh, to attend the Master's Seminary um, in order to be better equipped in how to handle God's Word, as well as uh, a really strong desire for myself to enter into pastoral ministry. Um, so this required that uh, I leave my, my pre- or I left that, that I leave my, my previous job over at uh, the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Uh, as well as the church family here at SF Bible. Um, day by day, um, I've learned to just trust God in light of all the different changes uh, that I've had to, to make in this past year and a half. I'm thankful for all the encouragements. Uh, many of you have uh, reached out to me this past uh, year and a half, see how I'm doing, so I'm really uh, encouraged and thankful for that. Um, even when I wasn't always good at communicating uh, or even checking up on you guys or, or giving updates on what I was doing. I kind of just, like, dropped off the radar. Um, but to give an update, I'm currently a member as well as a pastoral intern over at uh, Lighthouse Community Church, um, which is a church located in Torrance, California. And um, I currently serve in uh, the young adult or post-college uh, fellowship group known as Praxis there. Um, Lord willing, I'll be graduating from the Master's Seminary in about two or three more years. I'm on the the longer track. (laughs) Um, And I just want to briefly share some of the the lessons that I've learned. Um, I'm sorry if this sounds more like a confession, but maybe I I hope to be just really honest about my time in seminary and even how God has humbled me. And so this is all this is just life and wisdom that I've learned in the context of just spiritual growth, studying in seminary, as well as being a part of the local church. Uh, lesson one is that God has shown me that I need the church just as much as um, I feed the church God's word as I, as I serve or function as a pastoral intern. You know, seminary can be a dangerous place for someone who forgets that they need to be involved uh, in the lives of people in the church. Um, when big changes occur in life or difficult circumstances uh, arise, it's really easy to isolate yourself and not invest in the people or in relationships in the church. Uh, during the first few months of seminary, uh, I spent a lot of lonely uh, days and nights just reading, doing writing assignments, uh, trying to adjust to this workload one would normally expect um, being uh, at a graduate level uh, institution in graduate school. Um, and many times I missed out on, on good opportunities to, to fellowship um, and be edified through the encouragement of others. And that was an important le- lesson that I learned, that when circumstances are, are tough, uh, I need to be moving towards people and not withdrawing from the church. And it's such a great blessing to experience the encouragement and sharpening of other brothers and sisters, which is something that I've, I've experienced um, during my town, time down there at Lighthouse Community Church. Um, lesson two is that, you know, I've learned that faithfulness in seminary doesn't always equate or mean faithfulness to Christ. Um, Getting all my assignments done and getting a good grade doesn't necessarily mean I'm faithful to Christ. And that I can still, uh, one can be faithful in seminary, yet still be unfaithful in other areas of the life that they ought to be faithful in. Um, Other responsibilities and stuff, other areas of life. Um, For married seminary men, um, they're always told and taught to be continue to like love and care for their wife and children, uh, not just make studies like the main thing um, and, and the only thing. And the same principle applies to other responsibilities that God has entrusted me, um, that I can't just drop the ball on everything else and just study and read 24-7 and live like, a, like an ascetic religious hermit or something. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the second lesson that I learned. Lesson three is that um, I need to guard my heart 
from envy and spiritual pride uh, in seminary. And I, I still struggle with it, but um, I've grown a lot this past semester and just my understanding of why God has placed me there. Um, in San Francisco, some of you guys might think of envy in, in the terms of other people's homes, the ability to even afford a house in this very expensive city I probably will never be able to move back into and, and, and live in. Um, or that dream job that your friend has where they make a lot of money, yet they don't even work really hard and they have a ton of vacation time. Um, yeah, maybe that's a dream for some of you, but, or something you envy. But for me, uh, envy came in the form of wishing I was as bright, as gifted, as talented, and sharp as, as some of the men there who found themselves in, in seminary school. Uh, guys like that I see that have a wife, multiple kids, part full-time job, and still manage to do exceedingly well in, in their courses, uh, it just kind of shocked me. Um, there were guys who had the ability to, to or claimed uh, to be able to speed read. It took me like two to four times as long to complete the same, very same assignment. Um, there were guys coming in who already had a strong command of the, the biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek, while I was just trying to learn my ABCs and one, two, threes. So that was a very humbling um, experience, uh, as well as uh, an opportunity for God to really bring me down a notch and, and teach me humility, um, something that I really needed and better to have learned earlier on. Um, yeah, and finally, lesson four is that um, being in seminary and also being in pastoral ministry is a great privilege. Uh, I know that not uh, everyone has the opportunity that I've been given. Um, um, people have to you know, work other jobs, support their families. And I have this specific season in life where I can really focus and study God's word. So I'm really thankful for that opportunity. And with that said, um, it's really given me um, just that mindset that, you know, I shouldn't squander or, or waste this opportunity to be a good steward of it. Um, it's truly not a, 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 any kind of privilege that I deserve or have earned in any way, but really it's just the grace of God. Um, shown to me in, in this regard. And this really helps me have the proper perspective towards ministry. Um, that, you know, all I do is just a stewardship um, in the service of my master. And if and finally, uh, I just have a, a few prayer requests. If you could be continually uh, praying for me, uh, I would be greatly encouraged. Um, uh, first, that I would just grow in discipline and stewarding my time and um, in all the different responsibilities I have, both in the church, personal life, and friendships, uh, as well as my time uh, studying in seminary. Uh, I've re- experienced the real struggle of uh, trying to do all things faithfully um, and even managing my, my, my own life, which is actually one of the requirements for one who aspires to the office of an elder in First Timothy 3, uh, that one can manage his own household. Um, uh, life is a bit chaotic right now. Um, also, that I would just continually meditate on God's word and prayer, um, to never forget those spiritual disciplines that... Um, devotion to studies and seminary uh, is never apart from a devotion t- to my worship uh, in Christ. Yeah, and just uh, that God would grant discernment and wisdom in where he would have me in the next stage of life. Probably next one or two years, I have to think more seriously of where he would potentially lead me. I thank you all for your time and hearing me. Thank you, Chris, for sharing that. I really appreciate hearing from Chris. That's uh, always a joy to have uh, some of the, our young men and women come back and you can just hear from them and what's going on in their lives. Especially, it's a joy to hear uh, young seminarians and what the Lord's teaching them. And just uh, pray for him. It's a, a lifetime of ministry uh, ahead of him. And who knows, uh, somewhere down the road, uh, Chris will be your pastor. You know, so it'll be kind of interesting, right? So pray for him, especially now. Okay. All right, if we continue our worship service this morning by looking to the Word of God, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52 is where we'll be. Actually, 52 verse 13 and through into chapter 53. As we've been going through the book of Isaiah, it's fitting that we come to this chapter on this Sunday, this Christmas Sunday. Uh, we've been learning in primarily in Isaiah about uh, <clears throat> the the comfort that God gives to the nation Israel, but also to the nations, to the world, through his promised Messiah, through his servant. It's uh, salvation that he would bring, and uh, we are, we, we definitely uh, have been encouraged as we've grown to know our Savior a little bit more. 
this is what's called the, uh, familiarly known as the servant song, the fourth servant song. There are four of them that we'll find in this passage in, in Isaiah, and this is sort of the crown of them all. This one is a, a powerful uh, and vivid a prophecy written 700 years before the birth of Christ. And so uh, as you read this text, I, I don't even need to n- say the name Jesus, and I hope you just, when you're reading this, you will just know that this is about Jesus who fulfilled it uh, to, uh, to, the complete, to completion. And uh, as we look to this text, I pray that we would be encouraged as we uh, look at our Savior and we look particularly at the reason for why, the purpose for why he came. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for our time in your word and pray that you be glorified as we look to it, cause our minds to focus upon the truths found within, so that you would be glorified as, the, as we come to understand more of why you sent your son, why you gave us uh, this uh, your, your very only begotten Son to take on human flesh, to be born, to live, and to die. Father, may uh, all of us remember that reason today. And if, if there are any here who do not yet know that reason or have not come to believe in that reason, in that message, Lord, I pray that we pray that today might be a day of salvation for them. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Before I get to the text itself, I just remembered I want to make sure that I remind you all on behalf of, uh, or extend to all of you on behalf of Cindy and myself and our our family, a Merry Christmas. Uh, uh, So here's our Christmas card to you. but it's uh, just our Christmas card. And if you would like a physical copy of this, we've made some available. It's on our literature table in our foyer, and you can grab one, one per family generally, unless there's a lot left over, then take as many as you want. And as you put it on your refrigerators, please pray for us uh, as we strive to uh, raise our children in the ways of the Lord. But uh, you may have heard probably recently of a name in the news. Name, her, her name is Emma Wren Gibson. Anybody hear that? Okay, yeah. You might not have known her the news name, but you would have most likely, hopefully, heard about her story. That she is the little child, little girl, who was born from an adopted embryo that was frozen 24 years ago. Did you hear about that? It was all over the news. I mean, at least it's all over somebody's Facebook feed, I know that. But <laughs> it was really cool because she is uh, the longest frozen embryo to be born. That's an amazing. That's amazing. 24 years. In fact, it's, it's so long that her birth mother, the mother who gave birth to her, was only one year old when Emma was conceived. That's crazy, right? Like, wow. If it had just been a few years later, it would have been like, wow, I'm older than you, Mom, when they grow up. But anyways, so the uniqueness, though, uh, the story just reminds me of the uniqueness of this girl's birth, and that's why she made the news cycle. It's a uniqueness of someone's birth that will make her newsworthy for that week, and I think probably for, for much of her life, at least to her parents, uh, they will look at her as someone special because of her birth. There's a uni- the uniqueness of her birth it causes it to be an expectation that God has brought this young lady after 24 years of waiting for a purpose. This has got to be, why, you know, it's an amazing thought. And then as we think of her birth, though, uh, we cannot help but think of the birth of Christ and how his birth was truly an infinitely more magnificent, unique birth. For in baby Jesus, we do find the birth of a child who was much older than his mother. He was the eternal son of God who took on human flesh and came into our world. His birth was truly unique in that he was conceived without a human father, but by the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is a mystery to many. We don't understand how that could happen. It's an enigma. And though we may not fully grasp it, the Bible teaches it, we believe it. Because his birth, the miraculous nature surrounding Jesus' birth, symbols, symbolizes for us that he was born for something special. He was born for a special purpose, a unique purpose, a purpose greater than every single purpose that any of us are born here to do. And like his birth, today's passage teaches us that the purpose for Christ's birth was 
an equally enigmatic reality. It was confusing and a mystery to those who heard about it, particularly the Jewish nation at the time of Isaiah. But it's equally enigmatic for us today in our world. For many people have heard of probably Jesus Christ. They use his name on a daily basis, perhaps. But they look to him as someone who does of no consequence. They look to Jesus as just something, well, that's just some religious figure, a man. Those who look to him just for, for salvation oftentimes look to him for salvation of just our human travails, a whole host of them, whether it's oppression or liberation from slavery or for some kind of oppressive uh, situation, liberation or salvation from poverty or injustice or loneliness or low self-esteem or maybe uh, just uh, your lack of, uh, a lack of friends. But that's not what the truth of Scripture teaches. The Lord Jesus Christ came into our world not, not necessarily to deliver us from these human struggles, but he came to deliver us from our sins. This is a scripture, this is a scriptural truth that doesn't fit or didn't fit in Israel's world in Isaiah's day. And it doesn't fit in our world in our day. Go out into the world today and you uh, tell people about what the meaning of Christmas are, is and that Jesus Christ came to die for your sins. Do you believe you're a sinner? Oh, no. Do you believe that he was born of a virgin and, so, and he was the eternal son of God? Mm, I don't know. He was a good teacher, though, I heard. That the sovereign God, that the sovereign eternal son of God would come to suffer and to die at the hands of men for our iniquity and our sins is a message that few understand and fewer believe. Now, I know I'm in a room where I'm preaching to the choir. In this room, I trust that there's many of you who believe this. Many of you have come to understand this. But I know that we know that there is a world around us that does not believe this message and has yet to understand it. And I pray that we, who have, as God gives us opportunity, would go into our world and, and tell others about Christ. And if you go out there, maybe today's text, Isaiah 52, 53, maybe that very passage that we, you can use to show how 700 years before he came, Christ's life and his purpose for coming was already foretold to a T. The suffering servant of the Lord was a contradiction too great to be accepted by most. The Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that the message of Christ crucified was a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Yet that is his purpose. The, servant of, the messianic servant of, that's foretold in Isaiah has, was promised by God, and he came with, for, with a very specific mission. He would not turn to the left or right from his mission. He would obey despite this, the opposition that would arise. And today we're going to learn that the, very, the specifics of the opposition and the, the struggles that he would face in fulfilling his mission. Today is called, uh, this, uh, in our four servant songs, is the suffering of the servant. And as we look at this passage, you're going to find it breaks down pretty, pretty equally into five, uh, five points of three verses each. And the first and the fifth point are going to parallel each other. And they're kind of, the, it's called a chiastic structure where the main point of the text sort of leads into the main point. That third and middle section point is really the, the crux, the apex of Christ's purpose for coming into this world. And then we'll see it when we get there. But don't make a mistake and think that Isaiah 53 is only about the suffering of the servant. It's often called about the suffering of the servant, and that's just commonly how it's uh, labeled. But really, this chapter, 52, 13, all the way to 53, verse 12, teaches us that his suffering will lead to exaltation. That it's about his exaltation because of his suffering. This morning on Christmas Sunday, we're here to worship Christ. And we remember why Christ was born, because he came to be born to die on the cross for our sins. But don't let us stop there at that thought, but let us respond to it and let us exalt him because in, in heaven right now and in for all eternity, Christ will be exalted and glorified and worshiped because of why he came. 
as an outline for us today, pretty simple outline. I'll call it five enigmatic truths of Christ. So they were truths that for the average Israelite person in that day of Isaiah, they would have like scratched their head out. They wouldn't have gotten it. And even today, they're truths that people would kind of not really understand or would not accept. But they're truths of Christ, of the servant that magnify his worthiness to be worshipped on this day, nevertheless. So let's take a look then at these five points. The first point is the exaltation of the marred one, the exaltation of the Messiah. This stanza is seen as the summary of the whole song. Look at verse 13 with me of chapter 52. And it begins this, Behold, my servant will prosper. He'll be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Verse 13 begins with an expected truth, a commonly expected truth. This is what everybody would have expected about the Messiah, the Messianic servant, that he would be exalted. Here is the one whom everyone expected to come. He's the one who's going to be the, the, the son of David, the Messianic king, the, king, the, the, from the, the root from the branch of Jesse. He's going to be the one whose government will rest upon his shoulders. This is the one who's going to be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. This is the one, you would expect him to be the one that everyone just exalt him, exalt him. Hooray, the king has come, right? That's, that's the response. That's the natural expectation. For Israel, that's what they expected to do, to exalt their coming one. They expected him to be like a victor, a champion who would defeat their enemies. They did not know that he would come to defeat their greatest enemy of all, and that is their sin. And so what comes next to them is unexpected. Verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and, from, and his form more than the sons of men. The response to him is going to be one of astonishment. Uh, it could be translated as awestruck, or even have a negative connotation of being appalled. It's a shock to many people. They'll be shocked at, how, at what the, the, uh, the Messiah will come and look like. His appearance will be that of one of a man who's marred. This word marred basically means someone who's disfigured, someone who's been deformed through some means, in this case, through his suffering. Something terrible is going to happen to the Messiah that will make him marred. That when the person looks at him, because he will be beaten and bloodied and essentially impaled onto a piece of wood, he'll be a crown of thorns surrounding his head, that when you look at him, it will be an astonishment. This is the Messiah? But this will accomplish something great. Verse 15. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. The term sprinkle that he's going to accomplish was an imagery, Old Testament imagery of cleansing. Blood or water was often sprinkled on someone or something as a, as a symbol of their cleansing for a task. Ezekiel 36, 25 would speak of how God would cleanse Israel by sprinkling. You see, the servant will come and he will cleanse and he will cleanse from sin, not just the nation Israel, but many nations. Again, a reference to the fact that the servant is going to come not as a light to Israel, but a light to the nations. The nations will one day see the truth and understand the truth about the servant. They who once mocked him, scorned him, will one day have nothing to say about him. They will look to him instead for salvation, for cleansing. The irony in all this is that the one who the people considered basically unclean, for that is the result of being marred and disfigured. In the Old Testament, anything that was marred, disfigured, even as whether a priest or, or an offering, a lamb, could not be brought near. You could not approach God in that way. But the one who the people considered unclean will be the one who cleanses the people. And for this reason, he will be exalted. And so we see this unexpected truth of the exaltation of the marred one. And then with the next three stanzas, his suffering, the marring that will result from his suffering, it will be elaborated upon. And we see the second point, the second enigmatic truth, is the, in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 53, the despising of the humble one. The despising of the humble one. Verse 1, who has believed our message? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 1 here basically records for us the words of the future repentant Israel. All throughout this, uh, in the first person plural here throughout this passage, they're talking about people whose sins are forgiven. They're going to look back and they're going to look back and they're going to recognize that we didn't believe him. None of us believed the message back then about the servant. But one day in the future, Israel as a nation is going to look back and they're going to say these words. They're going to recognize the truth about the Messiah. They describe, and as they look back, as future repentant Israel looks back, they're going to describe the appearance of the Messiah. They will reflect upon their own blindness to the truth. They do so by asking these two rhetorical questions. Who believed this message? Who, did we rec- who recognized that he was the arm of the Lord, that he was the one, the power for salvation that God was going to send into the world? None of them did. Few would believe in the message of his arrival. Few would understand. The Apostle John, in his gospel, in John chapter 12, verse 38, would identify the fulfillment of this verse. When many, even though Jesus performs many signs and wonders and miracles, and though he had been with them and told them the truth, they did not believe in him. The question is, why wouldn't they recognize him? Why didn't they not recognize him? Because they could not get over his humble appearance. They despised his humble appearance. They were looking for a king, not someone who was humble. Verse 2, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. The description here of a tender shoot, a young plant that is, or a root out of parched ground, pictures a very humble, frail small beginning, something that could be easily crushed and snuffed, you know, like little roots of the ground. You just step on it, crush it. Though he is sent by the Lord as the Messianic Davidic king, Jesus did not appear like a king, did he? He wasn't even born to a king, much less he wasn't born to any of the high priestly families. He was instead born to a carpenter, not in Jerusalem either, but in deep backwoods of Galilee, well, Bethlehem, but then grew up in the Galilee. He came as a baby, born to a carpenter. His life from beginning to end was veiled in humility. He was born in a stable. And what was the response to the humble appearance of the Savior? Many people stumbled over it. Verse 3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Israel is looking back and says, we did not esteem him. This is amazing. Here's a prophecy of Jesus when he would come, but it's a prophecy of people afterwards who would come afterwards looking back and say, we did not esteem him. This is just God's uh, just amazingness in, right, in giving prophecy like this. He was despised by people and forsaken by people because his life was not the life of what they expected a king to be like. They know what Caesars lived like. Caesars lived large. They killed people left and right. They had all sorts of lavishness and richness and power and might. Jesus did not come in this way. Instead, Jesus knew only a life of sorrow and grief, of pain and sorrow. He experienced all of this in life. John 111 tells us, furthermore, that he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. The people of God did not, re- did not accept him. Jesus would be forsaken by his people, not only the nation as a whole, but even his disciples would, at some point in his ministry, at, on the, at, in the night of his betrayal, would all betray him and flee. And notice that Israel owns up to it. We did not esteem him. The Messiah had come, but he wasn't what they expected. The Messiah was a king, not a humble carpenter. He was to usher in joy and peace, justice even. No one expected him to be characterized by sorrow and grief. But he had to be so. He had to come in this way because of the next paradoxical prophecy. And it gets to the heart of the truth of why he came. And that is the third point 
the suffering for our sake. These verses, uh, in these verses, Isaiah prophesies that the Lord's servant would die for our sins. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Israel will one day come to know that the grief and sorrows that the Messiah would bear in his life belonged to them. It was their sorrows, their griefs that he bore. They had thought that the Messiah was being punished because of his own sin. He, perhaps he deserved what he got because he was a rabble-rouser. He was a blasphemer, perhaps, because he was going against Roman rule. But the reality is that he was punished by God for our sins, it says. Verse 5 continues the prophecy of the Messiah's substitutionary suffering and death. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chasing for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Notice throughout verse 4 and 5, there's a constant replacement. Jesus experienced this for whom? Himself? No, for our sakes. It is he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastened for our well-being. He was scourged for our healing from sin. The Messiah was expected to come to punish sin. He's the one who's going to bring law and justice into the world, right? He's going to bring, he's going to, isn't he going to come and judge the world? It was completely unexpected that he would come to bear the punishment for sin. And that is what he did. And this is the heart of the gospel. We call this the substitutionary atonement. It is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, perfect sinless came, and he died and suffered in place of us for our sins. The wrath of God that we deserved, he bore upon the cross. And this is perfectly and beautifully summarized in verse 6. You know, they talk about Romans 6.23 being the one verse you use to share the gospel in the New Testament. This is the one verse you use to share the gospel in the Old Testament, okay? This is it. 53 verse 6, memorize it if you haven't. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Like sheep, all of us have gone astray. We each, we're pick, all of us are pictured like sheep who wandered away, who got lost. We've, gone, we've chosen to go our own ways instead of following our master of the shepherd. And because of that, we call that sin. When we wander, we miss the mark. We wander away from God's loving rule and, and shepherding over us. And that sin deserves a judgment. It's sin. And before a holy God, there, there's a penalty for sin. But the Lord, instead of punishing us for our sin, caused our iniquity of us all, all of us, to fall on him, the servant, to fall on his son. Jesus, when he hung from the cross, was bearing on his shoulders our sins, our iniquities, our chastening. It was all this, the punishment that he did. When God forsook him on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was ours. That was our words that should have been coming out of our mouths. We deserve to be forsaken of God. But he was forsaken. Apostle Peter would allude to these words here in verse 6 in 1 Peter 2.24, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. The substitutionary death of the servant was such an unexpected concept. It was a mystery. And for many Israelites, it was a complete stumbling block. They just could not understand how this could be. How could the Messiah... The king die. Doesn't make sense. Much less, how could he then come? Why would he come and die for the sins of people who deserve to die? But this is what the scriptures tell us about him. 
that he came to suffer for our sake. It gets worse for in the fourth point, we see the oppression of the innocent one. The oppression of the innocent one. Verse 7 through 9, Isaiah prophesies that the Lord's servant would die like a criminal, even though he was innocent. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. The fur oppressed here is a, as a picture of pressure that someone puts on someone to make a payment. That uh, the people, the, whether it was a pilot, Pontius Pilate, or whether it was the Jewish leaders, they oppressed him. They forced him to, uh, to, to make the payment of death of, of his life. And though he was innocent, notice twice it says he was like a man with no defense. He was silent. He did not open his mouth. You know, if you are going to be condemned to death and you're, you're, and you're found guilty, you're not going to like say, no. be quiet about it, are you? I think everyone will be screaming, kicking, screaming to the very end, I'm innocent. I did not do it. I'm, I did not do that thing you said I did. But not Jesus. He was innocent. But he was silent. It shows us his humble submission to the will of God to fulfill the purpose for which he was born. Yet it wasn't for his sins that he remained silent, was it? Verse 8, by oppression, again we see the word oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Here, uh, the Messiah, like the worst of criminals, would be condemned to death by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. He had no choice about the matter as far as man was concerned. He was taken away. It was man who cried, crucify him. It was man who condemned him to death. Man who betrayed him. But yet, Notice Israel looking back, says, as for his generation, the people who lived at that time, who knew that he was cut off of the land? Who thought that he was dying for their sins? No one had a clue. It was a mystery. They deserved that, the stroke of penalty for their sins. He did not die for any sin of his own. He died for the sins of his people. It was inconceivable that this would happen. Christ crucified is a message that does not make sense to the nation of Israel in that day. And on top of all this, he was innocent. Verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The Messiah would be assigned to be buried with criminals, Jesus was crucified between two thieves, remember? Actually, two rebellious thieves, probably murderers as well. I mean, he would have received a burial appropriate for criminals, probably just thrown in a pit. Instead, we find the prophecy is that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. He would be buried as one who has honor. Joseph of Arimathea, one of the Sanhedrin members, asked Pilate for his body and then buried him in his own tomb, according to John 19. See, although Jesus is treated like a criminal in his trial and death, Jesus was innocent and though treated as an innocent man because he was in his burial. He had done no violence. He had not spoken any deceit or trickery or blasphemy as he was accused. The sinless servant of God suffered and died in the stead of sinners. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 was earlier read, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteous of God in him. This leads us then to the fifth and final enigmatic truth about the Savior, the Christ, and that is the glory of the crushed one. This is again parallel with the, uh, parallel with the first statement, that he would, though he would be marred or crushed in this case, he would be exalted, he would be glorified, 
Though the Lord himself would crush his servant, the Lord would also be the one who would exalt him. Verse 10, look with me there. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 10 is probably, or perhaps, the most unexpected prophecy of all this text. Is that we, could, we would expect, okay, he suffered, okay, maybe he suffered at the hands of men, he suffered because of Satan, but it says here that he suffered, he was crushed because of the Lord himself. God himself crushes him. He crushes his servant, who is his son. And this is hard to grasp. As, a, as many of you say, here are parents. You know, when you have to discipline your child, it's difficult because of the love you feel for them. And you watch them and they're crying because they know that they don't like the punishment they're receiving. They might not fully grasp it even, but you discipline them because you know you, you love. And that's hard for a parent. But imagine it's, hard, it's even harder as a parent to accidentally hurt your child. You know, say you're, you're flossing your child's tooth for them and you actually push too hard. And they go, oh, ow, oh, no. So I hear. <laughs> but to intentionally hurt your own child, I would, tr- I would believe that even the wickedest of here, us here would find that hard to do. We don't want to hurt our children. We love our children, and God loves his son. But God was pleased to crush his son. Wow. Why? Crush, he would crush his son even though it meant death because he would crush him so that he would be a guilt offering. A guilt offering. That is, that, is, that he would be a, become a sacrificial lamb that was made, killed, and where his blood would be shed across the altar as an offering for the sins of those who brought the lamb. That is what Jesus came. He came to be the lamb of God. And when he died, it was the Lord God who sent him. But, though it meant his death, because he was willingly, he willingly went to his death, the, the, the word here, the promise of that he would see his offspring, that he would prolong his days, that he will prosper in his hand, indicates to us that the Messiah would somehow live after being crushed. This is the promise of the resurrection, which Jesus did on the third day, and we'll say that for Easter. But verse 11 tells us the purpose of the serpent's crushing again. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. The purpose of his crushing and his anguish will be for the justification of the many. The doctrine of justification is something we see in the New Testament. It says, particularly in Romans chapter 5, where God would declare righteous those who by faith put their trust in the Savior. The Lord, but the Lord declares sinners right because Jesus, or the servant, bears their iniquities upon himself on the cross. On the cross. However, God will not just justify everyone. He doesn't just declare everybody righteous. It's not universalism, but only those who come to know and believe in Him. It's by His knowledge. That is, it could be translated by the knowledge of Him that is the righteous one. My servant will justify the many. It's through the knowledge of Jesus. Do you know Jesus? It's through knowing Jesus that we know eternal life and we know God the Father. John 17, 3. And so the Messiah's work of providing salvation would lead then to his exaltation, as we see in verse 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion, a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The exaltation that is described here uses the imagery of sharing the spoils of victory. It's like there's a great treasure that's found, a booty, a portion, a, a large uh, uh, inheritance of treasure, like a, a, you may even think of a pirate's treasure. But there's going to be this great treasure 
in glory of the, uh, that comes from victory over sin. And this glory will be shared. The great and strong are a reference to those who believe. The servant is exalted because he, he poured out himself to death and bore the sins of many. He poured out himself to death. Make no mistake, it's not that he had to shed a, a single drop of blood. He had to die for our sins. And he was, yes, counted as a criminal, numbered with the transgressors. And yet, all along, he himself was bearing our sins. He was interceding for us as, our, as sinners. He received the glory, and he will be glorified. He will be counted, he'll be glorified in eternity future. In light of New Testament revelation, we understand that his crushing was for the sake of our salvation. And because of that, God highly exalted him. We think of passages like Philippians 2, 8 through 11. That's a great cross-reference. You can read that when you have a chance. But the Lord God, because he was willing to endure the suffering and the shame, the sorrow and the grief, to bear the, our sins, our iniquities upon the cross, the servant will one day be exalted, will one day be glorified. And as we conclude, I just want to ask again the question, who has believed our message, what Israel would ask in the future? You know, not many believed our me- the message when it was first delivered here in Isaiah. They didn't even grasp it. it was, they missed it when Christ came. And when Christ did come 700 years after the prophecy of Isaiah, many of the people missed it then. They saw him. They saw him in person. Many of them walked with him. They, they saw his miracles. They heard his teaching. And they did not believe the message. Here again, in our day, we have an opportunity to proclaim the truth of Christ. Paul would quote Romans 10, 16, we write in Romans 10, 16 and 17, he quotes this verse. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So you've, uh, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, friends, family who are here, you've heard the word of Christ once again. You were expecting to hear a message about the birth of Christ today. Well, he was born to die for our sins. That's why he came. And if you have not yet, if you have not yet come to believe and understand this message, you come to understand, if you, today you, that is starting to dawn on you the truth and you, you understand that Jesus Christ came to die for your sins and that you're a sinner who deserves God's wrath, but if you, you know that there's a free offer from God that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, I invite you today, believe the message of the word of Christ. Put your trust in him for he died on the cross for you. He came into this world for you. Don't be like the many who did not believe the message. And for the rest of us here in this room, I hope it's been a great refresher, reminding to us of why Christ was born. His birth was unique, wasn't it? It was unique because he came to accomplish a great and very special purpose. That is, to die for our sins. But our response, hopefully, will not just be of, God, that's good. Not even just, oh, I'm thankful for that. But that we would see that the purpose for why God, that the the result of his suffering would be his exaltation. And if, though the world is not exalting him, that we would today, in this season, exalt him. I want to just read for you Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 to 14. And this is what's going to happen in the future, in eternity, in heaven, around the throne of God. 
And this will be the, the voices of, of the angels surrounding the throne. Listen to what they say. Then I looked, and I, John's writing, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing in every created thing which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them. I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. 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 And the elders, which I believe symbolic of the church, the people of God, fell down and worshipped. Will we do that today? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for the truth of the Savior. And may you, for many of us here who have believed upon Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, Lord, we thank you for why you sent him to come. Thank you for this text that is so precious because it tells us about Jesus even before he was born what he would do, and what he will accomplish. We thank you, Lord, that for his willingness to suffer in our, sta- in our stead. We thank you, Father, for the salvation that you freely offer, not only to Israel, but to every, all the nations, to everyone who believes upon Christ. Lord, we pray that, that if anyone's here who does not know Christ, that today you would bring them to saving faith. Cause their eyes to see, bring them, give them understanding, so that today they would bow the knee Confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord. And the Lord, we pray that for the rest of us, that we would exalt you. That we would exalt not only you, but we would exalt the Lamb, our Savior. For to him, does, he belongs all blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people worshiped, fell down, and said, Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a Merry Christmas. If you're uh, around us uh, tomorrow, 9.30 a.m., we'll have a Christmas uh, day service, morning service here. Please, you're welcome to join us. If I don't see you tomorrow, have a Merry Christmas. God bless you.